Welcome to the Archways Podcast. Archways is recorded on the campus of Johnson C. Smith University and intended to support the goals of the Center for American Cultural and Race, which is housed on the campus of our partner institution, Guangdong Baiyun University in Guangzhou, China. The Center and this podcast are designed to help our Chinese colleagues and friends understand and experience American culture through the lens of race. Here now are your hosts from Johnson C. Smith, Dr. Brian Jones, and Dr. Matthew DeForest. Welcome back to the Archways Podcast. Uh, I'm Dr. Brian Jones, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters at Johnson C. Smith, uh, and I'm here with two very important guests, Dr. Cheryl Butler-Brayboy, Associate Professor of English at Johnson C. Smith, who will be helping me today. And we are very pleased to welcome the Honorable Jennifer Roberts, Mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina. Mayor Roberts, welcome to the Archways Podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, we we spoke a little bit uh, before we turned the microphones on about um, Johnson C. Smith University's projects in China, including the Fulbright Hayes, but also the American Cultural Center. And uh, we're very excited to have you here today to talk to our Chinese partners uh, about the city of Charlotte, uh, about our international reputation and our international projects throughout the city, and uh, to um, help them understand better American culture and race through the lens of the mayor of one of the South's most dynamic and uh, populous cities. So let me ask you to start. Um, can you talk a little bit about how Charlotte has changed? I don't think it's a city that appears on many maps for, uh, for a Chinese audience. Um, tell them about Charlotte. Tell them about our city and tell them about uh, what, uh, what goes on here on a daily basis. Well, it's going to be hard to do that in a few minutes, but I will give a great summary because Charlotte is, as you said, a dynamic rapidly growing, changing southern city. And it's now the 17th largest city in the United States. So we're in the top 20. Uh, If you look at our metro area, we're actually 22nd. Uh, Some of our cities in the United States are small geographically, like Atlanta, part of a bigger metropolitan area. And so Atlanta is actually smaller than Charlotte, but its metro area is bigger than our metro area. So, but we like the number 17. (laughs) We're sticking with that. Very good. And, you know, it's interesting. I grew up here, and when I left Charlotte the um, in the late 70s, I went off to college and um, lived uh, in Washington and overseas and came back in 93. But when I left, Charlotte was a small southern town. It was a city that very few people had heard of. Uh, it was um, focused on... Uh, somewhat on banking, but that was really before interstate banking took place. So it was really uh, not a center of any one industry. And um, after five o'clock, the downtown was completely silent. <laughs> so everybody left and went home. And I came back, as I said, in 93, and already the city was beginning dramatic change. Uh, there were new roads, there were new buildings, there were people moving here. Uh, banking was the center of a lot of that growth. We had an interstate banking pact that led to our banks expanding faster than other parts of the country. So we had regional, then super regional, and now we have Nations Bank, well, Bank of America, which um, went through some iterations before it became Bank of America, the largest bank in the United States. And that started here in Charlotte. Charlotte, of course, has always been a center of business and commerce. Our original, original founding, way back before we were a country, uh, was that we were the intersection of two Native American trading paths. And the reason we call our downtown Uptown 
is because it is high ground. There's a subtle hill that goes into uptown, and that's why it was the center of the trading paths, because it didn't get muddy and it didn't get inundated with rain. It was really a dry, safe place for those major thoroughfares to cross. And we still have two major interstates that cross very near uh, our uptown area, that's 77 and 85, and they have been also engines of growth. So as Charlotte has continued to grow, as the banking industry grew, um, we continue to attract people. We have become a vibrant downtown, uptown uh, area with museums, with hotels and restaurants, with cultural centers. Uh, we also have tremendous sports teams here, um, starting with, you know, getting the Hornets here, uh, then the Panthers, and we have, you know, baseball uptown now. Um, all these things have been adding to our national and international reputation. And so we are now, um, and this is so unusual for me as someone who grew up in Charlotte when, as I said, it was a very sleepy downtown. People now move here without having a job because they want to live here. And they come here and they look for a job. And so we have 44 people a day moving into our city. Half of them are under age 35. So we have become, because of our cultural assets, because of our sports teams, we also have, by the way, a man-made National Whitewater Center, which is only 20 minutes from our uptown Another good reason lots of young people want to come here because they can kayak and raft. And on the weekends, there's always a band playing right in the middle of this terrific whitewater course. Uh, and so they get quite a few people out there on the weekends. So that is, you know, that combination of, of adding those assets, of becoming a place that is thriving, um, becoming a center of innovation, and to be known for that creativity, to be known for the dynamic uptown that we have. Uh, another thing that helped put us on the international map was when we hosted the Democratic National Convention, and that was only four years ago. We had uh, President Obama came to uh, for his second term to get uh, on the stage here, and we had dozens of international media. And there were several stations from China who were here covering that. We had ambassadors from all over the world who were here. We had senators, congressmen, governors. And that put us on the international stage as a city, but also as a center of conventions, because you have to have a certain number of hotel rooms and venues to be able to host uh, a convention of that size. And so what we found after that convention was we started getting requests for bigger conventions because people knew we had enough of those assets. So we are now a terrific place to visit. And again, as someone who grew up here, when I couldn't think of any reason why you want to just come visit, it's always been a great place to live and raise a family. It's been a great place for kids. But as a, as a child growing up here, I never thought that people would just come and visit Charlotte for visiting Charlotte. Now, one out of nine of our jobs in our region are related to tourism. So it is a huge industry for our area, along with banking, along with healthcare, along with innovation, IT, along with motorsports. We can talk about that, too, because I know there's a lot of interest in NASCAR all over the world. But all of those things have really helped Charlotte grow, diversify, and continue to be a great welcoming city. 
Can you talk a little bit about your leadership style and your vision for Charlotte and also discuss how your prior experiences in foreign service and with local government have contributed to your your focus? I have an unusual background for a mayor. <laughs> and I have, uh, because my interest in policy started really with foreign affairs. And so I have two master's degrees. One is in modern European history, focusing on the diplomacy in Europe. And the second is on international studies with a focus on Europe, politics and economics. And so my interest in policy really started with foreign policy, with how do countries interact, how do different peoples understand each other, get along with each other, trade, have commerce, have cultural exchange, and how does that impact the world and our progress. So I began to get more focused on local politics when my children entered public school. <laughs> and so I started looking at where the money comes from and who supports our public school system and how that gets done. And that's how I became a county commissioner, as I really wanted to have that voice at the table of supporting our schools. I think education is key. But my background in international has been very useful in my public service because my first post in the Foreign Service, I was a Foreign Service officer for four years after graduate school, and my first post was in the Dominican Republic. And so the State Department taught me Spanish, and I used my Spanish for two years. So I'm fluent, I still use it, and what I discovered in coming back to Charlotte, my first week back in Charlotte, somebody stopped me on the street and asked me for directions in Spanish. And I was amazed because I thought, oh, I'm moving back to you know, my hometown. No one's going to speak Spanish here. And lots of people speak Spanish. In fact, today, one out of four of our students in our public school system are Hispanic. So either they were, were born in a, a Hispanic country or their parents were. Uh, they probably speak Spanish at home. And that's a tremendous change from when I was growing up. So I use my Spanish. I go on Spanish radio. Uh, I have town hall meetings in Spanish to make sure that those um, folks, the residents who are here, are getting the information that we need in our city about how to grow your small business, about how to enroll your child in school, all those things, because um, those folks are contributing greatly to our economy. And that international background has also helped me as I look at Charlotte's place in the world and our connections. Um, our initial connections started with Europe. One of the reasons that we have uh, a language immersion school here is because we had a number of investments from France, Germany, and, uh, of course, the Hispanic community has been in Latin America. So our first language immersion programs started with those languages. But we have also added Chinese and Japanese. So we now have a public school where young people can start speaking Chinese at age five, and they are immersed in that language until they're in sixth grade. So my daughter actually took that language program. She did French. She is now fluent in French, and she's studying Chinese as her second language, third language, I guess, because English was the first. And she is in school and uh, in college in California and hoping to have that be her minor and computer science be her major. But that background also helps me understand why Charlotte needs to compete globally, helps me understand why Charlotte businesses need to be encouraged to export why we have to have sister cities, why we need friendship partnerships with other cities, why we want to have trade missions, why we want to invite visitors from other countries 
to have their conventions here, to grow their companies here, to come to our events, because we are a global player. And we, when we're looking at attracting talent, we're not just competing with Atlanta and New York. We're competing with Singapore and Berlin and um, um, you know, many, many places around the world, Tokyo, uh, where we know that our talent can go because we're such a, an international community. Mm-hmm. It's one of the hallmarks of, of world-class cities, major cities um, throughout the industrialized world is that they are, they are diverse, extraordinarily diverse, um, with, um, in some cases, places like New York with ethnic enclaves. Could you talk about the, the, the diversity of the, of the city and, and its region, its growing diversity, what I assume is a growing diversity of the city and its region? Absolutely. And what's interesting, if you look at the immigration patterns in Charlotte, we are not traditional in that we don't have those enclaves. We don't have a little Italy or a little China. We have our immigrants interspersed throughout our community. There are some areas where there are maybe higher proportion. Um, Our east side of the city, down Central Avenue, there are a lot more Latino and Hispanic residents. But you also find them in Huntersville, on South Boulevard, um, in Davidson. You know, we have folks kind of all around the community, which is actually wonderful for helping folks integrate into the community faster. And that's something, again, that separates us from some of the other traditional immigrant cities like San Francisco, New York, Chicago. Uh, Charlotte's kind of that second wave. Uh, we're not a coastal city. So it came you know, after those initial um, areas of settlement. And we do have an increasingly diverse immigrant community. One of the things people here don't realize is that we are also a place of refugee resettlement. So we have um, people from Sudan. We have people from Ethiopia. We have folks who are fleeing violence. We have a number of Vietnamese residents who we gave safe harbor to after the Vietnam War. If they had fought on our side in that war and if they had been in prison, uh, they were given safe passage to the U.S. with their families. And many of them landed in L.A. and were told when they hit the ground, because I've talked to a number of the families, um, when they hit the ground, they said, oh, you've been assigned to Charlotte. <laughs> and many of them were like, where's Charlotte? <laughs> right. Charlotte wow. has been a place of resettlement because we are a welcoming, hospitable southern town. We are growing, so we have job availability. Um, most of the folks, after, as soon as they get here, they are employed. Um, you know, most of those folks get right into the labor force. And um, we are also a place with a great climate which makes a big difference. You don't have to buy big, heavy coats here. (laughs) So uh, you might get a little bit hot, like in July and August, because of the humidity. But uh, but by and large, we are a a really wonderful place for that resettlement. So, So we do have a number of immigrants from Mexico and Latin America, but we are increasingly getting immigrants from Asia. Um, We've had the European immigrants from way back, uh, but we are getting more from Asia and... um, Is it South Asia or East Asia or a little bit of both? All over. Uh, China, India, uh, Pakistan. Uh, Especially what's interesting, if you look at um, the medical community and you look at the technology, IT community, number of folks from India and Pakistan. Uh, and some of those are intercompany transfers. Some of those are people who are um, coming with a, one of our big banks or, you know, with Microsoft or uh, 
Microsoft has a very diverse employment base, as you mm-hmm. can imagine. Sure. Um, they have a very big campus down on Arrowwood Road. Uh, so, so some of those are with companies. Uh, some people come here to start a medical clinic um, because they have family. And that's a very interesting dynamic because when you look at the leadership, uh, especially in certain industries, and you look at the innovation and places that are growing, you see a lot of diversity in that leadership. I believe that having those different cultural perspectives makes us stronger and better, helps us grow smarter, and helps us be more global in looking at how do you market to the Asian region? How do you market to India and to China? And how do you, um, you know, Indonesia, Singapore, all these places, how do you let them know what you're doing and have more of that exchange? I have had uh, more than 10 ambassadors visit me in my office since I've been mayor. I've only been mayor for six months, so <laughs> that's pretty good. More and, than and, one and a month, right? <laughs> more than one a month. Absolutely. France, Indonesia, Britain. I mean, it has been amazing. Uh, Czech Republic. Uh, and, and the Czech Republic wants to do more business with, with Charlotte. So uh, it, is, it is amazing how we are, we are on the map in a very positive way. And again, and the, I think I'm that sorry, makes it The Ch- Chinese ambassador was here um, in, in the spring. I can't remember the date. It was in the spring, mm-hmm. I believe. Was it in the spring? Yeah. Well, For Chinese New Year. Uh, it was in January. January, it was. It was Correct. in end of January. And this is the first time that the Chinese embassy in Washington has had its New Year celebration outside of Washington, and that the ambassador chose to do it here in Charlotte. He also worked with my office to invite about 500 guests, (laughs) and all of those 500 guests had some connection with China or with U.S.-China connections, with Charlotte-China connections, and it was a, a wonderful gathering. I'm so glad it was a reception, not a dinner, because people were mingling mm-hmm. and talking and moving around the room. And long after it was supposed to end, <laughs> it's one of those kind of receptions. So what we saw was that dynamic connection between Charlotte and China and the interest that so many folks have in strengthening that connection and increasing tourism, increasing commerce, increasing cultural ties such as our Chinese immersion programs, having the English language programs in China, and really making those connections uh, from a cultural perspective. There is so much. Another area, Chinese medicine. We have more and more folks using acupuncture, and Eastern medicine in general uh, is starting to be covered by insurance. Uh, Many of our... (laughs) That's That's key. key. Yeah. (laughs) That's something that we understand well here in the United States. (laughs) But um, I know some musicians um, who actually, because, you know, a lot of repetitive motion, um, they actually do acupuncture to help relieve stress and muscle tension. Very good. Yeah. So you, one thing you mentioned is that Charlotte, Charlotte is a southern city. And I'm wondering, because many of the issues we've been talking about are relatively new, globalization, internationalization um, business. How do you make sense of the intersection of the Old South and the New South here in Charlotte? And why is that attractive to international travelers? Well, there is um, there's a good part of that, and there's a more challenging part of that. So the good part is, as I said before, we have that front porch, sweet tea, welcoming mentality. And actually, I live in an older neighborhood, and everybody has a front porch. 
and it's not a huge front yard. So you can actually, we can actually sit on our front porch and see people walking their dog, and we can weigh, and we can talk from our porch. And so it's kind of emblematic of the traditions that we have in the South. The way I was raised to, uh, to be gracious, to be um, polite, to make people feel comfortable. You know, don't, when I was raised, uh, we used to say, you don't talk religion or politics at the dinner table. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to make folks uncomfortable. So that's changed a little bit in my house. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but I think that, so that, that welcoming um, sense is so, even we have refugees from Vietnam and Bangladesh and places that people here may not really know where they are on the map. They see them as people. They want them to feel comfortable. They embrace them. And you see this in young people, older people. It's a wonderful part of that. It's the other part, though. Man, before you talk about that, let me say this to you. Because yes. one of the things we talked about when we wrote this grant to create this cultural center is that we wanted to explain to uh, non-Americans about the notion of a more perfect union. That there are challenges that we face and we have mechanisms in place to deal with them. It doesn't happen quick and it doesn't happen um, always to everyone's satisfaction, but that the American democratic process is an experiment. Uh, we described it as exceptionalism because we su- we suggested that it was that experiment of nature of it that is exceptional in the world, that is a democratic system which has its own self-correcting measures in it. So we are willing, we w- wish to talk about the flaws and the challenges that we face. I mean, so many of our other podcasts have been about race and slavery and mm-hmm. some very challenging topics um, as from an HBCU and from a, a, a New South City. So, so please don't hold back. We want to hear <laughs> where the flaws exist and how we repair them. That's what that's what we intend to do with this podcast is to help folks understand our democratic process. Absolutely. So, so that's the good part. Uh, now let's talk about the challenges. And there are many. Uh, I think that in Charlotte, we, we recognize challenges, we confront them, and we create a task force. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so we like to talk, and I think it's, it's a Southern thing, but it's a Charlotte thing. And what is great is to see, and we've had, we've had police violence. We've had white officers shoot black young people who are unarmed. Uh, we have had challenges around um, discrimination, and that is um, race, but it's also on ethnicity. It's also on religion. Uh, we have a growing Muslim community here in Charlotte, and I have been to the Ramadan, the Eid, and, and other things, and when you leave the facility, there are often Christian protesters who are holding signs and saying, you know, Christianity is the only way, and we don't agree with you, and, you know, worse things. So we have, uh, we have some of that clash. Um, historically, obviously, we have the, the tradition of slavery, the history of slavery, the generational poverty that that contributes to. And I'll give you an example. This would be interesting. I have um, friends, you know, I consider myself middle class, and I have friends who are middle class, kids in public school, uh, both parents working, you know, not fancy houses. But, but, but many of them have a house in the mountains. They didn't buy it. They inherited it from their parents. So we've had wealth in families for generations. And it's not, they're not huge houses. They're, you know, we have one. It's a summer cabin, has no heating, no air conditioning, <laughs> does have water. But, but you talk to African-American families, 
they don't have that in the middle class. They have not had that generational property to hand down. They have not been able to accumulate the wealth in the same way. The house that's in my family was there since the 1930s. And if you look at Jim Crow, if you look at the history of slavery, you look at so many things, that didn't happen in the African-American community. And that has, and that's just one example. There's so many other concrete examples of how that poverty has persisted and how the separation that we had with Jim Crow led to unequal uh, in education, in businesses, in power, in a voice in governance. And that made all the difference. Charlotte had a thriving area right in our uptown called Brooklyn Village that was mostly African-American businesses, small businesses, thriving, doing great. Well, the city leaders in the 60s decided we're going to have urban renewal, which meant we're going to move all those businesses to Beatty's Ford Road, and we're going to have government buildings right there in the heart of downtown. And of course, people weren't living there. I mean, it's Marshall Park is underutilized because it's surrounded by government buildings where everybody goes home at 5 o'clock, and there aren't people living in that part of town. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting to see how it's actually shaped. Now, we're going to redevelop Brooklyn Village. That's, that's about to happen. Huh. It's been the county's about to sell it and redevelop that and make it dynamic once again. But it won't be the same, and it won't have the same strength of African-American businesses that, that grew there, that really, that really flourished there. So... So that's one of the challenges, uh, that, that generational poverty. If you look at a map of Charlotte, we have a task force called the Opportunity Task Force. We discovered that in Charlotte, it's one of the hardest places for people to move out of poverty. Harvard University did a study looking at uh, that kind of economic mobility. Charlotte is 50 out of 50 of the largest 50 cities in America. So this task force is looking at what does that mean? What are the causes? And if you map Charlotte, we have a crescent that goes from east to west uh, that includes um, uh, low income, more income disparity, lower quality schools, more single parent households, segregation by race. It's mostly um, uh, African American or people of color, immigrants, et cetera, in the east and the west. And so in every measure, those parts of our city are not succeeding the way the North and the South are. And the Southeast particularly, Southeast is this wedge of high wealth, high earning, wonderful schools, um, all the way down to the, the Southern area, Ballantyne, et cetera. And so what we struggle with in the city is how do you bring opportunity to every part of the city? How do you make sure people have access, access to health care, access to good transportation that can get them through a job? Owning a car is expensive <laughs> with all the insurance, especially when your teenagers learn how to drive. Yeah. <laughs> and then your insurance goes up, like yeah. doubles. So so a lot of folks depend on the, on the transit system. Uh, so we have you know transportation challenges. We have housing challenges. We are about 34,000 housing units short. For hourly workers, we are we need about thirty four thousand more affordable housing units for people who are making twelve to fifteen dollars an hour. And so right now they're either they're doubling up or they're living outside of the county or outside of the city and and having that large commute. So we have that challenge with that separation. And again, some of that is decades old, mm-hmm. that you had right. African-American neighborhoods that have remained African-American neighborhoods. And I mean, I, 
I walked in those neighborhoods when I was campaigning. And you meet a lot of retired educators on West Charlotte. You just wonderful families who've been in their house forever. And it's so interesting. When we, when we have our annual budget in the city, we talk about the tax rate and how much houses will be taxed. So you have the people in the southeast who are, like, all upset about the taxes going up at all. Then you have people on the west side and the east side. You talk about that generational poverty. Their housing prices haven't gone up. And they're investing in that asset as something to pass on to their children. And if you live in southeast Charlotte, your children can sell the house and get a couple hundred thousand dollars for their new business they're going to start. Well, if you live on the west side, your house had not gone up at all. Your children are kind of like, oh, great, now I have to maintain something. I'm not really getting any value from this property. And then there's the issue of gentrification in some of those historic neighborhoods where the, you know, the, the houses are being redeveloped and the prices skyrocket. So from like seventy thousand to four hundred thousand dollars. So it makes it difficult in terms of taxes, property taxes, for people to maintain those. Right. Right. So, so it's kind of either way you're in trouble. So if your neighborhood has has not gone up in value, you don't have an asset to pass on. But if your neighborhood has then you're having to pay those high taxes when you're retired and you can't stay in your own home. So we have those challenges. One of your predecessors was um, known and now known as the the transportation mayor uh, who has since moved on to Washington, um, uh, Mayor Anthony Fox, who's now a secretary of transportation. I wonder if you could talk about transportation in the city. It's something that also other major cities and something that our, our Chinese students uh, will understand um, in terms of uh, mass transit, um, a lot of uh, walking in China, a lot of uh, bus opportunities. Um, and transportation is, is central to um, the growth in southern cities. Up until now, it's been automobiles and highways. Um, what is the future of Charlotte as you see it vis-a-vis -vis transportation? Well, and that is a big challenge for us because of the cost involved. And you're right. We developed, I remember um, after I left Charlotte, I lived in Washington. I lived in Toronto. I lived um, places where you had great public transit. And I remember every time I came back home, I was like, gosh, you got to get in your car to go anywhere in this city. <laughs> and, and things were far apart. The old idea of developing was cul-de-sacs in neighborhoods with lots of houses, little dead-end streets that were safe for kids to play in, but that were far away from shopping centers, from doctor's offices, from schools. You know, you kind of had a separation. That's where our zoning code worked. Now it's all about mixed use, thank goodness. So we're starting to change so that people can walk. But we grew up structurally based on the car and the automobile. And if you didn't have one, again, one more thing that separated you from, you know, middle class, what made it so much hard, harder to get out of middle class was that whole separation. So we are trying to solve that issue we are a non-traditional transit city, uh, again, not one of the coastal cities that grew up like New York with a subway system. We are, we are about to open the second leg of our light rail uh, in a year from now. We will open the leg that goes from Center City to the university. Could you explain the light rail to um, those who aren't in the know? Absolutely. So we developed a transit plan uh, in 1998, uh, which we are about to update. But that transit plan had five main um, spokes that go into the center of our city, uh, east, west, north, south, 
northeast. And again, looking at uh, commuting patterns, looking at housing patterns, uh, where the airport is, we developed that, uh, that plan. So the blue line is the first light rail line that we opened in 2007 based on that five-spoke plan. And it went from, it goes from Center City to uh, South Charlotte. And it would have gone to Pineville across 485, but people in Pineville, which is a small town to our south, didn't want it. So it stopped just short of that. And now they're, they are um, ruining the day they made that decision. I, I grew up in Pineville. <laughs> oh, you did. So okay. That's, that's very, I wondered why it didn't stretch all the way yeah, down. Yeah, they protested. Pineville protested. They did not want it. So it's almost 10 miles, and it goes from 485, which is our major um, loop, uh, into the center city. And we get about 18,000 to 25,000 riders a day on that line, which is taking all those cars off the road, which is terrific. And we have seen initially, now it's much more than this, but initially in the first uh, five years, even before the line opened, we saw $1.4 billion of additional investment in office, retail, and housing along that light rail line. We have a rail trail where people bike and run that it goes along that line, and people love it. They're out walking their dogs. They love the flat you know, area. They, people commute on bicycles along the rail uptown. So it's become um, not just transit, but also a connector, a community asset, and a place for people to bike and walk because of the, the path that goes alongside of it. When we open the line to the north, we're going to have that development as well, all along North Tryon up to the university. They're predicting even more ridership on that because the university has so much research going on with Uptown, so they have an Uptown campus, and they have many speakers and events that go on between that campus. So and this, this is the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. That's correct. One of the, one of the several um, state-funded uh, public higher education institutions. That's um, right. The only so, major one in this city, public. Yeah, I was going to say, right. to sort of piggyback on that, I wonder if you could speak to Charlotte as a college town compared to other big college towns like Boston, Chicago, even Washington, D.C. We're growing in that mm, way. Right. We are. Let me, let me first talk about John C. Oh, Smith yeah. oh, yes. in transit, <laughs> and then I'll talk about yes. the, the universities in general. John C. Smith, uh, the second line that we're building is a streetcar line. And, again, we have to piece together funding from the federal, state, and local government because it's very expensive. But we are going to start the second part of the streetcar line that will go to Johnson C. Smith, we're starting that construction this fall, and that will be open in a couple of years. And so what we will see then is that Johnson C. Smith will be connected by streetcar to the light rail, and the other side will be connected to the hospital and almost to Central Avenue. And so that's going to be two and a half miles connecting that 20 miles of blue line, and we'll have the east and west connected in the north and south. It was very important for us to fund the east-west line, even though the funding was harder to put together, to show the east and west side of the city, remember those are the challenged parts of the city with lower income, to show them that we have a structural connection that's going to help bring investment to them as well and get people to their jobs. So that's important. Back to the university question. <laughs> so there are places in our country, uh, Boston is definitely one, that have 20 universities. Atlanta has, you know, so many in uh, right in the heart of downtown and, and nearby. Uh, Charlotte has, has UNC Charlotte, Johnson C. Smith, Queens, uh, Davidson, which is right up the road. 
We don't have quite the concentration that some larger cities have, but we are growing that. Um, we are growing with our universities and the research that we're continuing to do. And we're focusing on things that make sense with our industries. So medical uh, research, even though we don't have a medical school, we actually have the third and fourth year students from UNC Chapel Hill who do their residency here because we have much bigger diversity of patients and of diseases and things that they can see and learn about here in Charlotte. So Charlotte, uh, Carolina's Healthcare is actually a teaching hospital, and it's the largest hospital in the state uh, and a very successful hospital, even though it's also public. Uh, because of that teaching, because of the breadth of um, specialties that they have, and because of a lot of private dollars that have gone to fund the Levine Cancer Center, the Levine Children's Hospital, and other things. That's something else that's very interesting for our, our friends in China. One of the ways that we get things done here in Charlotte is public-private partnerships. So we don't raise enough taxes to actually pay for all the public assets we need. We partner with our corporations who are doing well, employing lots of people, but also who have some profit that they can invest in public assets that also serve them. So we have seen this in almost everything. If you look at our parks, if you look at our cultural um, amenities, look at our, our um, science museum, all of our public assets have private donors and private support from corporations and from wealthy individuals who often get their names on the buildings. <laughs> so that's why you see a lot of Levines, a lot of Blumenthal's. Uh, but that's one of the ways that we keep the tax rate lower. And that's important, um, again, for some of the folks who are uh, lower income, we try to keep it an affordable city. We work very hard to, to make those public-private partnerships benefit both sides. Uh, even transit, we have had um, the last part of that blue line, the canopy that's over the stop near the arena, we didn't have any money for the canopy, and Bank of America paid for it, hundred thousand dollars. So fascinating. So those are all things that uh, we're working to grow our our university community. They're very important, especially for innovation and research, and building those industries that we know make Charlotte a great place. I know everybody at, at Johnson C. Smith and and President Carter in particular are excited about the the streetcar arrival um, uh, to connect us back to the uptown area to make sure that Johnson C. Smith is intimately connected with the activities of uptown the way it used to be um, before before the interstate came through and so on. And so that's a very exciting time for us, and uh, we're, we're excited to have our faculty and staff and students a better integrated uptown, effectively more using that more as an opportunity for them to find resources and activities, but also to make sure that Johnson C. Smith is one of those prized assets in this city. And, and then when folks come to Johnson, to Charlotte, North Carolina, Johnson C. Smith is there, and they, they see it and hear it and know us uh, for all the reasons uh, that are good. We, um, we have just a, just a few minutes left before I know you, you've got to uh, go off to other um, important activities. So I wanted to just ask you um, quickly about the future of the city. We, we already hinted in that direction already, but from an international standpoint, what are future opportunities for us? And, and, and as, the, as a side to that, 
do you want to go to China and have you been before? Uh, we, we can, we're interested to take you with us if you would like to go. Let's so, get down to the China. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I have been to China a couple of times. I My first job out of college, I was a teacher, and I taught at a school up in Connecticut where we had Asian students, and I was invited to visit um, China and uh, Vietnam. And so I um, visited two of my students, and that was in 86, which means people were still wearing mail suits, and there were lots of bicycles. Wow. I went back with Billy Wireman with a World Affairs Council trip in 1998, and um, we saw... Um, a big change. <laughs> a lot more cars, a lot more uh, large buildings. And we are working actually very hard in Charlotte to grow our connections to China. We have, we have seen a tremendous increase in interest in immigration, especially the investor visa, because we know that uh, there's a little volatility in the Chinese currency right now, and we know that the dollar is a very strong, stable currency. It's a strong country to invest in. So we are encouraging uh, Chinese investors. We actually had um, a groundbreaking along the light rail line uh, with a new 350-unit multifamily residence with entire entirely invested um, by Chinese investors. And uh, Jenny Wu is the director here, um, but she worked with the Commerce Department and really made um, um, that great investment, was there at the groundbreaking, and that's going to be the first of many. We know that we'll see a lot more of that. Again, the Chinese ambassador was here. We have a growing uh, Chinese-American chamber here in Charlotte. I have started a mayor's um, Chinese Charlotte Chinese Council. So we had 50-something people come to our first meeting, and it's a leadership group that's looking at how do we increase visitors, cultural exchanges, investment, both directions. Uh, we have a number of companies who are already working in China. If you look at the number of Chinese companies in the area, tremendous growth. Ten years ago, there were three. Now there are over 35. There were 35 Last year, I think we may have added one or two since then, so maybe we're up to 37. But that's just in, that's in less than 10 years. So it's been tremendous growth, and we want that to continue. Uh, we have an amazingly successful Dragon Boat Festival on Ramsey Creek Park every um, every spring, and it gets more and more visitors every year. It was started by uh, the Chinese community, but it's all Asian. You have, like I said, Pakistan, Indonesia, all those folks um, put out their booths, and we have great cultural performances and native costumes and dragon boat races. And they go on starting at 7 in the morning until 4 in the afternoon, all these dragon boats racing on Lake Norman. It's wonderful. So so we have uh, continued to grow that connection. I have been on the advisory board of the Confucius Institute. I said my daughter is studying Chinese. I think Chinese is a wonderful language to know. We need to make sure that we're learning Chinese the same way the Chinese are learning English, or they say learning American, <laughs> because we have a different accent than the, yes. than the British do. Yes. And, um, and many folks do ask when they're looking at teachers from around the world, they ask for the American accent, because it's the language of business. Mm-hmm. And we have so many multinational companies headquartered in the U.S. that are really doing business all over. So we are encouraging in the mayor's office, in our business office, in um, our Chamber of Commerce, we are encouraging 
continued growth with our Chinese friends and, and neighbors and partners, and we are working with the community here to help grow that and help make continued connections. We're actually also doing an export seminar in July where the head of the XM Bank is going to come to Charlotte, and we're going to talk about how you export. China will be one of those places to talk about, uh, but even looking at, again, those connections. We also have a sister city in China, Baoding. And I do plan to go to China. I am going, um, we're still putting the trip together, but I'm going in November. Okay. And Shenzhen is um, one of the cities that wants to have a partnership agreement with us for more trade and, and visitors, et cetera. They're having a big trade festival or a trade conference on November 16th. So we're planning our trip kind of around that. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, so, so we're getting a bunch of folks from Charlotte to do that. And the last one was done with Mayor Anthony Fox. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think five years ago. Good. Okay, well, let me just offer one last question, and then we'll, then we'll let you go. Um, one of the mayor's job is to be um, uh, ambassador, but also salesperson. So we have several Chinese visitors visiting from Guangzhou uh, beginning. Uh, they've already started. Actually, we have um, five more over the course of the next several months. So give us a list of your top three things to do for a Chinese visitor. What should they do? What must they do when they come to Charlotte? We haven't even talked about NASCAR. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, so I mentioned a few of the things. We have amazing museums uptown. We have the Beckler, which is a modern art museum. We have the Mint Museum, which has changing exhibits, has a tremendous um, permanent collection as well. But they're right uptown. You can walk uh, from any of the, the hotels uptown. We also have the Whitewater Center, which is very unique. In fact, um, we've had a couple other cities copy us since we built ours because it's been so successful. But it's still very unique. It's man-made. Uh, you know, man-made channels, three different channels for white water. They can adjust the speed of the water. They can adjust the ballisters and things to see the way the eddies and the currents work. It's just a fascinating mm -hmm. engineering uh, spectacle. It's also a fun place to go and to, uh, to visit. Then you have the Charlotte Motor Speedway. So we have three main races a year, uh, the Bank of America 500, Coca-Cola 600, and the, um, the NASCAR All-Star Race. But even when there's not a race, you can go to the track and have a driving experience. Because all the race teams, there's a Richard Petty race team and a Buddy Baker race team, they all have drivers who let you get in the front seat. You have to put on the driver's suit, you know, anti-inflammatory and all that, um, or fire-resistant. Uh, you put on the helmet. You have that brace. I mean, you really can't move. I've done this. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> you can't move, which is a good thing because you would probably be going, ah! Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Scary. <laughs> yes. But you go around the track at 160 miles an hour, and they take you around five times, and you're like, okay, I'm ready to get out. Wow. <laughs> but it is, uh, we have had visitors from Asia who love that. Uh, NASCAR... Once you do that, you recognize NASCAR is a sport. <laughs> you have to be incredibly fit to be doing that, driving that car in that with that kind of speed in that environment for that many hours. I mean, the temperatures in those cars get over 120 degrees, and you're in this suit, you know, because you don't want it, it, to be to be in danger. And so it is. It gives you a real appreciation for the skill that's required, but it's also a lot of fun. <laughs> right, right. And you can camp right there. Like, you don't have to spend a lot of money on hotels. There's you a can camp route. in the middle uh, of the track. Of course, there are only a limited number of spaces, so I don't know how hard it is to get one of those. But we have about 100,000 people 
go to those events. And we probably have more who just come and, and you know, party around the edge and may, may not even go watch the race. But but we um, think that is a tremendous – we have a NASCAR Hall of Fame right here in downtown Charlotte, which has the history of NASCAR, has a driving experience. You can do a, you know, mechanized thing, um, video thing, and, and get some of that. Um, again, a great place. We have a lot of events that happen there because it's a great space with the, the actual cars and the actual slope of the tracks in different parts of mm-hmm. the country. So those are great things to do for visitors. And many of our conventions will take buses of people to the track and to the Hall of Fame and to the Whitewater Center to have those experiences. And, uh, you know, the other thing I would just say about Charlotte, you know, great place to invest, to live, work, raise a family. We have wonderful parks. Uh, We have the sixth busiest airport in the world. Mm -hmm. Six busiest. 155 direct destinations. And we are just getting a new airport tower that's going to be twice as high to allow us to have a fourth and fifth runway. That fourth runway will be longer and will allow us to have direct flights to Asia. So we're going to add those 155 destinations. We have 30-something international destinations already. We'll be adding to that when we can get that new tower and that new um, runway constructed. So, again, another reason to get in on the investment now (laughs) before all the Asian countries realize we have direct flights Mm. and to uh, be part of this amazing, growing, thriving, innovative, welcoming city. Well, I think that sounds like a very good note to end on. Uh, it's always um, um, very encouraging and uplifting to hear uh, discussions about Charlotte because of the many great things that are going on here. So, um, uh, Mayor Roberts, I want to thank you so much for visiting the Archways podcast, and I'm, I'm very uh, certain that our Chinese audience was happy to hear from you and have uh, hear your voice and talk about our great city and about uh, the, the various things that they can do when they visit. So um, let me thank you again on behalf of uh, my colleague, Dr. Butler Brayboy. Thank you so much for coming. We very much enjoyed it, and we look forward to uh, maybe taking you to China to visit the uh, the uh, American Cultural Center in Guangzhou. Absolutely. Well, I can certainly do more than one visit. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. The Archways Podcast is a production of Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina, USA, in partnership with the Guangdong Baiyun University in Guangzhou's People's Republic of China. Archways is made possible through generous funding from the United States Embassy in Beijing, China, and through the College of Arts and Letters at Johnson C. Smith University. Additional support has been provided by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Subscribe to this podcast through iTunes. You can email us at jcsuartsletters at gmail.com.